Happy New Year. It's great to see you all this morning. I was joking with Jennifer before the service. I was wondering, 9 a.m. New Year's Day, will it just be us and the sound team and the, the music team? But uh, here you all are. And can I say you're all looking lovely. Fantastic. Okay, but I got to dive in. And today, January 1st, I can imagine that many of us over the past few days or maybe even weeks have been giving some serious thought to how we will approach the new year. Is that fair? Have people been thinking about that? Okay, sounds good. So on a macro scale, on a high level, I think that many of us are probably looking at 2023 and hoping just please be better than 2022. Just be a calmer, calmer year. We don't need another pandemic. We definitely don't need another war, but just be an easier time all around. I'm not holding my breath. I don't know if you are, but that's the one side of things. On the other side, I know that many of us are looking at our own individual lives. New Year's is a time when people pause, we reflect, and we strategize ways we want to improve or change our lives. So, of course, on that topic of change and improvement, that's when New Year's resolutions come in. People making commitments to do better, to try harder, or to take better care of themselves in the new year. Yet, this concept of New Year's resolutions has come under some serious scrutiny in recent years. The classic example that you might be familiar with are gym memberships. In January, as some of you might be aware, gym memberships just skyrocket. I looked up some reports, and some gyms in the area report up to 50% increases in membership in January. The gyms are packed with people who decide that for their New Year's resolution, they're going to get in better shape or be consistent with their workout plan. But by May, just five months later, 80% of people who signed up for a gym membership in January either cancel or stop going altogether. That's the popular example, but there are many, many others. We can see similar stats with New Year's resolutions when it comes to learning a language, waking up early, or starting a hobby. This is just me guessing now, perhaps based on my experience, I won't say, but I'm guessing in the church we see a similar trend. Maybe it's a New Year's resolution to start an annual Bible reading plan. Maybe it's being consistent with volunteering or cutting out some bad habit or not-so-great routine. The reality is, in our culture, we love making New Year's resolutions, but for some reason, they almost always fail. Upwards of 80% fail in keeping their New Year's resolution. Why is that? Well, in 2019, Forbes put out an article seeking to address this question. They presented what they believed are the top three reasons New Year's resolutions fail. Those reasons were, I'll list them out. Number one, we try to change our behavior without changing our consciousness. Number two, we lack accountability structures to help us sustain and change. Three, and this one is quite interesting, we're too scared to actually believe we can achieve our goals. Basically, if I could sum it up in my own words, what I believe this Forbes article identifies correctly is that almost everyone recognizes that we need change. But 
Almost everyone places that burden of change on ourselves alone, and then it crushes us. We all need change, but we wrongly think we could change our habits without changing our minds. We wrongly think that we are powerful enough to change ourselves all on our own. And eventually, when we try, we come to wrongly think that change is just simply beyond us and that we might as well give up. That's the cycle with New Year's resolutions that Forbes identifies. And I believe that it properly, correctly gestures to a grander issue. At New Year's, we reflect and come to the conclusion that we need change. We need to improve. We know we can get much more out of life. There must be more to life. But the fundamental problem with our efforts is that we don't recognize the root issues when it comes to change. We know we need change, but we strive to treat symptoms rather than the underlying condition. We strive to change our actions. We strive to change our minds even, but those are just symptoms. There is something underneath controlling and governing all of that. So, with the objective of starting this new year off on the right foot, we are going to be addressing that fundamental issue that governs all our efforts to change our lives for the better. We're going to turn to a conversation recorded for us in Scripture. Because in John 3, we read of perhaps the most heavy-hitting, life-impacting, earth-shaking dialogue recorded in Scripture. And this dialogue that I'm just hyping up happens to be when a man, knowing he needed change, knowing he needed help, came to Jesus for answers. So today, on New Year's Day, the time when we're all thinking about change and growth in our lives, let's read this conversation. Let's learn from Jesus what the fundamental principles of change are that we need to embrace. The stats, as I just listed, don't lie. We are way more likely than not to fail in our New Year's resolutions, to fail in our efforts, to fail in our ambitions to change. We need to learn from Jesus what to do instead. So I encourage you, follow with me as I read John 3, 1 to 15. That's John 3, 1 to 15. There's a Bible in the chair in front of you if you need it, but Follow along. I'm going to read this entire dialogue, and then we're going to learn those three principles. So, John 3, 1 to 15. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, 
Are you a teacher of Israel, yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. May God bless the reading of his word. So, as I said, I believe from this passage we need to take away three important principles that will transform our understanding of change. The first point being, we all need to change. We all need to change. To unpack this point, let's meet one of our main characters here, Nicodemus. Nicodemus seemed to be a man who had everything going for him. Our text says he was a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews. As a Pharisee, Nicodemus would be recognized as one of the holiest men in Israel. He would be one of those guys that people would see on the street and think to themselves, oh, he's definitely good with God, or oh, he's for sure going to heaven, or maybe even, I wish I could be like him. Jesus himself picked up on this reputation of the Pharisees by stating this in Matthew 5.20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees, Nicodemus' religious sect, were known to be the holiest, the most righteous people in all of Israel. That was their reputation. That was their brand. That was their entire marketing scheme. If anyone would be someone we thought had it all together, if anyone was good just the way they are, if anyone we would perceive didn't really need to change anything about themselves, it would be Nicodemus and his friends. That's why verse 2 is so shocking. This man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night. I know as I say that, that might sound a little inconsequential. Maybe he was just having a late one. But there's actually a lot packed into that statement. In the Gospel of John, when we read the night, that carries a lot of implications. Let me give you a few examples. In John 9.4, it says this. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Pretty interesting, but let me get more explicit here with John 11.10. Jesus says this, But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. Finally, if we turn to John 13.30, it says this, So, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. This verse is talking about Judas when he left the supper to go betray Jesus. As one commentator puts it, bearing these things in mind, these verses, the statement in verse 2 of our passage that Nicodemus came by night suggests he was in a state of spiritual darkness when he approached Jesus. Nicodemus, the Pharisee, one of the most righteous of Israel, he needed change. Change isn't something that only the visibly broken have to worry about. Change isn't something that only the super strugglers need to pursue. Change is something everyone needs. 
You might see someone who has it all put together. They need change. You sitting here might even be the person that people look to and say, wow, you have it all put together. You don't need to change. Well, I'm sure in the night when you're with your thoughts reflecting, you know you need change as well. In this story, as we're approaching it, we're all, in a way, Nicodemus. As we start this new year, we need to start by thinking about it as Nicodemus. And thankfully, Nicodemus provides, out of everything else, a great example of what to do next. Nicodemus, like us, needed change. And this was well beyond his own abilities. He knew he needed change, and he knew he needed help. So he went to Jesus. Why Jesus? For us sitting here today in a Christian church, and we all talk about Jesus all the time, it makes sense. It seems like an obvious choice. Jesus is that guy. But for Nicodemus, this would have been an incredibly odd choice. It would have been a strange thing to hear. Nicodemus went to Jesus. Why, why is that so weird? It's because, as we said, Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews. To Nicodemus and his friends, Jesus was an upstart preacher. He was a, a peasant, a peasant prophet, who threatened and challenged their great authority. So, why would Nicodemus go to Jesus, the guy who challenges everything he's about? Nicodemus tells us why. He says this in our passage. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus heard about the teaching of Jesus, heard about his signs, and knew he must have come from God. In the flow of John's gospel, this conversation takes place right after Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding in Cana. Nicodemus, despite having everything to lose by recognizing Jesus' authority, heard about what he said and what he did, and knew he was the one with answers. Jesus' teaching undermined Nicodemus' reputation as a Pharisee. Jesus' ministry undermined and threatened Nicodemus' job security as a ruler of the Jews. Yet, in the dark of night, when Nicodemus needed answers, needed help, needed change, he knew that Jesus, based on his teaching, based on his works, was the one he needed to go to. Nicodemus knew that Jesus was the teacher from God and that God was with him. Thousands of years later, looking and talking about us here today, we can look back and have way more evidence than Nicodemus ever did that Jesus is exactly who we think he is. Looking back, we can read about the story of the feeding of the 5,000. We can hear the eyewitness testimonies about the calming of the storm. We have the empty tomb itself we can see and behold. More than that, beyond that, we have hundreds upon hundreds of years of Jesus' word kept. We have promises fulfilled. We have the nations kneeling before Jesus. We know we need change. So look at the evidence, like Nicodemus did, and recognize that Jesus is the one who can help you. Like Nicodemus, for some of us, it might seem like an odd choice. Coming to Jesus, frankly, might threaten your lifestyle, but it is clear, he is the teacher come from God. So, Nicodemus came to Jesus, and Jesus answered him. And here is where the root of change begins. I'm reading our passage. 
Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus needed change. He needed help. He turned to Jesus, and Jesus said he needed to seek the kingdom of God. This shouldn't be much of a surprise. From the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he was proclaiming the kingdom of God was at hand. But what does this mean? That's a nice term, the kingdom of God, but what is the kingdom of God? The Apostle Paul gives us some helpful information in Romans 14, so listen to this as I read his words. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God was not yet a physical kingdom. It was and is fundamentally a way of life. Many theologians have embraced this statement to explain the kingdom of God. They'll say the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule. While that looked different in the Old Testament and it will look different in the new creation, essentially the kingdom of God is people living in relationship with God according to his word and according to his will. So, When Nicodemus came to Jesus looking for help, looking for change, Jesus didn't offer anything too revolutionary. Jesus didn't give a long-winded answer. Jesus stuck to the fundamental message that defined his entire ministry. He proclaimed the kingdom of God. Like Nicodemus, we all need change. We need change that goes beyond treating symptoms. Just changing our actions doesn't really change anything unless it comes from the right mentality the right heart, the right vision. We must address our end goal. If we want to see change that is effective, sustainable, and holistic, we need to have our eyes set on the right prize. If you are to seek the change that transforms your life for the best, change that will transform everything, Jesus says you must ultimately seek the kingdom of God. You must seek to live as a person of God, in the place of God, under the rule of God. Instead of trying and failing another set of arbitrary New Year's resolutions, place the end goal of a life-changing relationship with God as your objective. Because that's the root of any other question and issue you're facing. But, saying all that, that's a nice little declaration. We have a big question here. The kingdom of God is the end goal, it's the answer. Joining it is the change that we need and the change that defines all other changes that we seek. But how actually do we see the kingdom of God, let alone enter it? In his answer that we just read, Jesus laid that out as well. I'll read that same verse again. Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Here's now the second principle we need to embrace from this conversation. We can't change ourselves. We can't change ourselves. That might go against a lot of what you hear, but I believe that's what our text teaches. Let's unpack that. Jesus says to even see the kingdom of God, to even consider entering this way of life, that is the best life, we must be born again. If you grew up in the church or around church people, you're probably familiar with the term born again or the concept of the new birth. But 
familiar with it or not, it's an interesting image to try and understand. Nicodemus picks up on this when he asks in verse 4, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus, like many, heard Jesus' answer and struggles to compute. How can a grown man be born again? Surely a person can't pass through their mother's womb as an adult. Certainly not. So, Jesus goes on to clarify. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The new birth, the act of being born again that people must go through to see the kingdom of God, is a spiritual birth. This is the fundamental change we all need, the change that defines all others. Our end goal is the kingdom of God, that defines it one way, but the new birth defines it the other way. Our best life is when we live as God's people in God's place under God's rule. But that transition point, the start of that, the change we must undergo, the change that is greater than any New Year's resolution in isolation is the new birth. We must be born again. I'm going to say that again, hear this clearly. We must be born again. Not a physical rebirth, but as Jesus says, you must be born of water and spirit. That is the fundamental change. That is the transformation we all need. But as I said that, I think we need to clear some things up. So bear with me. We're going to get a little theological, but we need to talk about the new birth a little bit. When people hear the new birth and they've grown up in a church, they might have some confusion. On the one hand, some people will hear the new birth and say, oh, that's obviously talking about baptism. Jesus says being born of water and spirit. But the reality is, I think most of us here know at least some people who have been baptized, but then never go on to see or enter the kingdom of God to never actually have true and life-changing relationship with God. That's because the new birth Jesus is describing here isn't baptism. It's spiritual rebirth. It's what, again, theologians call regeneration. It's the Spirit's work inside of us to bring us life, to cleanse us of sin, to open our eyes, and to transform our hearts. Jesus is talking about the spiritual event that physical baptism so powerfully signifies and displays. So, to be clear, being born of water and spirit is regeneration. It's spiritual new birth. It's tied into God's transforming grace, which in Scripture, both Old and New Testament, is described as living or cleansing water. So, the new birth, it's not baptism but rather baptism is a necessary, visible, and profound sign of this spiritual new birth, of regeneration, of the change we must undergo. So to bring it back, to recap too, our objective is the kingdom of God. To see and enter the kingdom of God, we must be born again. And being born again, this new birth, is the spiritual transformation of regeneration. When we come to life spiritually, when we start down the right path of change. To do that, we must be born again. But let's talk about that how. Okay, being born again is spiritual, but how do I be born again? This is where the analogy of birth is so helpful. Think about the event of birth. How does that happen? I see 
many mothers here, and I know that you would know it way better than I would, and even many fathers, you were likely present, but mothers, you know it best, and fathers who've seen it, you know it as well, and for the rest of us, myself included, I've seen plenty. I would consider myself an expert in medical dramas. I know exactly what happens. Oh, I hear a little laugh. You don't believe me? Okay. We'll talk after. You know where to find me. But what typically happens in a birthing event? How does it go down? Let me very high-level summary, just as I understand it. If I get it wrong, you can laugh at me. I won't be offended. Typically, as I understand it, that end point, the woman, the pregnant woman, as she gets to the end of her pregnancy, she'll experience contractions. They're in there somewhere. I know that. I know that term. Contractions get rushed to the hospital. The doctors and nurses will get her set up. They sit her up. They'll comfort her. And then this is critical. This is the critical part of the birthing moment. The doctor will grab a megaphone, clear his voice, and then yell to the baby, Okay, it's time for you to be born. Come on out. And then the baby, hearing the call to be born, will make a decision whether they want to be born or not, and then in most cases, they'll decide on their own, I'm going to crawl out of here. And then everyone will smile, the doctors and nurses will clap, and congratulate the baby on choosing to be born. That's it. That is how it happens. Okay, that's not actually how it happens. The medical shows taught me better, and I will summarize it again. Simplifying all the complex biological processes, babies don't birth themselves. They don't make that decision. They don't crawl out on their own volition. Mothers, in this amazing feat of love, bravery, and strength, push their babies out. People typically don't congratulate a baby for a job well, well done. They rightly congratulate and comfort the mother for all of her amazing hard work. Those nine months of pregnancy and that amazing, and in some cases, I heard enough stories, traumatic birthing event. The baby must be born, but the mother does this profound work. This corresponds to our spiritual lives. We must be born again, but this is not our doing. It's God's. God is the primary agent here. God is the one who does the work. God is the one who regenerates us. God is the one who gives us new spiritual life. It is God the Spirit according to the will of God the Father, thanks to the ministry of God the Son, who makes us born again. The new birth isn't a human work. As the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said, it's a divine operation, a miraculous operation. People dead in sin don't raise themselves to life. As the Apostle Paul said, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. Rather, God must act. Like the wind that cannot be seen, but surely will be felt and heard, God must accomplish this great spiritual work. No one can see or enter the kingdom of God unless it is granted to them by the Father. No one can see or enter the kingdom of God unless they are saved by the Son. No one can see or enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again by the Spirit. And how do you know if you've been born again by the Spirit? You will see and enter the kingdom of God. You will bear the fruit of the Spirit in your life. You will see the beauty and majesty of God's word and will. You will behold the excellencies of Jesus Christ and trust in him for salvation. You will experience the true and fundamental change that leads to a transformed life. Like a child born, you must grow. You must experience life's highs and lows. You will take great leaps forward and tragic steps back. 
you know that being you know that you have been born again spiritually if you are alive and growing day by day. It doesn't mean always joy, but it certainly is life. You know you have it if day by day you are trusting in Christ and pressing into the kingdom. Now this leads us to the last principle of change we learn from our passage. To recap again, we know we need to change. The end goal of that change must be the kingdom of God. We know we can't change ourselves. We trust in God for the new birth that only he can bring. That sets us down the right path. But finally, we must embrace the change that only God can bring. Nicodemus, after being told he needs to see and enter the kingdom, and after being told to do this, that he must be born again spiritually, he still struggles. If you have your passage open, look at verse 9. After Jesus gives him straightforward explanations and uses a couple of illustrations to even help him understand exactly what he means, Nicodemus says, how can these things be? How can these things be? How relatable is that? If you're a born-again believer listening to this, I'm sure that this is incredibly relatable. I know it is for me. As Christians, we believe in Jesus. We trust in him for our salvation. We know he is our Savior and Lord. We know that his word is best and his will is good. Yet when confronted with his teaching, how often do we still end up saying, how can these things be? When God calls us to love our enemies, how can this be? When God calls on us to obey unjust authorities, how can this be? When God calls on us to forgive seven times, 77 times, to give sacrificially and cheerfully, how often do we say in our hearts, how can this be? How is this fair? How can I do this? The reality is, it's one thing to hear and understand Jesus, but it's another to fully lean into them. Listen to what Jesus says to Nicodemus in response. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who also descended from heaven the Son of Man. Jesus calls on Nicodemus to be born again, to enter the kingdom of God, but necessarily to respond in faith. The new birth is a call to new life. The change we need is radical. The transformation we undergo is total. God raises us to new life, but we must walk in that newness of life. We have to submit to the change. We must live it out. Jesus calls for total trust in him and complete submission to his word. He is the son of man, the teacher from God. He'll change us exactly as we need to be changed, but we need to fully embrace it, especially when it's hard, especially when it's radical. Let me give you a couple examples. Imagine the person in financial disaster. They go to a financial planner for help. That's a good first step. A solid financial planner won't just give them a band-aid fix to keep them afloat one more month. No, a good financial planner is going to work with them 
to overhaul their entire approach to money and finances. And flowing from that hopefully change view of money, you would expect the person to make a lot of new decisions and challenge a lot of old habits. It'll definitely be hard, but that's the change they need. The root issue is their view of money. The financial planner will help change their understanding, but the person must lean into that. The person must work to seek and reach the end goal, which is financial stability. This new view ought to flow into a radically different lifestyle of spending and saving money. Let me give that second example. Maybe you're a kid, maybe you're at the end of high school, and you realize, wow, what am I going to do after school? Yikes, it was so easy, and now I have to think about my grown-up life. What am I going to do next? If you go to your parents, they'll probably tell you whatever field you're interested in, you better apply yourself to your studies. And they're not just going to tell you to cram for that one big test, then you're all good. No, they're going to help you transform your entire vision of preparation for life after high school and what that all means. That might mean radical changes. Cutting back on video games. Not saving your homework for the last minute. Maybe it's meaning you have to read the entirety of the assigned book and not just barely skim spark notes. Going to extracurricular events that might be lame but are super beneficial. These aren't band-aid fixes, but rather a transformed perspective lived out consistently. When God changes us, the temptation is or will be to think that new life just means a series of band-aid fixes. Do more good stuff and less bad stuff. But that's not the case. We have to fully lean into the new birth and the perspective it gives. We need to live a life of genuine faith in response to God's work. We must trust in and submit to Jesus. We're not just changing behaviors. We need to fully embrace the fundamental change of vision. See, enter, and diligently live as a part of the kingdom of God. God alone changes us. God alone saves us. God alone raises us to new life. That's transformation beyond even the most ambitious New Year's resolution. God does that. You need to change. You need to turn to Jesus. You ought to pray that God raises you to new life. But when he does, fully lean into it. That's the life worth living. That's the greatest change we could ever experience. The greatest change that needs to define all other goals and commitments. For as Jesus said in conclusion, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus died to save sinners. He was lifted up on that cross so that we might have life. Believe in him, trust in him, embrace the change only God can bring, and live a life of faith and response. It will be hard at times, but he is faithful to complete the work he has begun in us. So take that in. On the one hand, 80% of New Year's resolutions fail. And those typically only address behaviors and seek to work independently in our own limited human power. On the other hand, you have God who never fails. And he is addressing the foundational issue, your heart, and will transform your life in a way that you could never imagine. Pray for that change. Set goals and make commitments this New Year's with that change in mind. And live in response to the regeneration God alone can bring. In conclusion, brief conclusion, I want to highlight next steps. I gave you a lot on change, but we need to talk what comes next. 
But first, if you're an unbeliever sitting here today or listening to this, you must be born again. That's step one. You need to cry out to God, turn to Jesus, for he alone offers you that foundational change you need. But if you are a believer listening to this today, you know that this change, being born again, is only step one. Step two is joining the community Christ has established. Embracing the change, living it out. That can be so hard. But that's why Jesus established the church. That's why sitting here today, we have a community of accountability, of encouragement, of help and support. Do not neglect the means of growth and comfort that Christ himself gave to his people. Sharing our faith in and with the church strengthens our faith. It deepens it. It supports it. Likewise, step three is similar. Nicodemus came to Jesus hidden in the darkness of night. That wasn't a good sign. He needed to step into the light. We need to step into the light. Fully embracing the change that, God's bring, that God brings means declaring it to the world. If you've been changed by Jesus, if you've been born again, you'll share that with people. You'll want others to know the joy and hope that you now know. Step into the light. Be a child of light and proclaim with Jesus the message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Tell your friends. Share it with your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates. Share with them the simple but life-changing proclamation that they must be born again. For that too cements the joy and blessing of salvation in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your wisdom in recording this conversation for us. God, as we approach this new year, as we think about ways we want to improve, want to change, want to grow, help us fix our vision on the kingdom of heaven. As we seek to change, as we seek to grow, help us to look back and trust in the change that you brought us by raising us to life in the new birth. As we set goals and make commitments, may these things guide our paths so that we might make changes that matter, that we might make changes that are sustainable, and that we might make changes that honor you, that glorify you, and that proclaim the holiness of your word and your way. God, this is difficult, but you are faithful, you are good, and you help us in this. So we trust in you now and look to you for help. In Jesus' name, amen.